is Bloomberg Surveillance. We think we're heading into an 80s and 90s type environment where it's a Warren Buffett slash Peter Lynch type world where you buy good companies and you stick with them. We live in a world which is more and more weightless. Intangibles are such an important part of the economy. I think it's pretty clear that if you only looked at the economic data and not at the markets, the Fed would be raising rates in March. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKeon, Tom Keen, Worldwide Bloomberg Surveillance. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio Plus. I'm Bloomberg. Thrilled that you listen on iTunes, our podcasts that are out there. Bloomberg 1200 Boston, Bloomberg 1130 New York, down to Washington, 99.1 FM. And good morning, good early morning on the West Coast. And across Sirius and XM Channel 119 and Bloomberg 960, the Bay Area. In this uh, half hour, in this hour, uh, I, I think I can say it's the beach read of the year for thinking people. Jeff Garten to join us from his Yale University, and we'll talk about uh, what we don't know about globalization and what we need to know as well. Bloomberg Surveillance, brought to you by Cohn Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory, to seize opportunities in commercial real estate. Your business needs market-focused guidance from the industry-leading experts at Cohn Resnick. Find out how at ConeResnick.com. Michael, you okay over there? Peyton Manning I'm, retiring? Yeah, I'll survive. You're going to survive? I'll survive. I mean, it, uh, we're, we're glad he gets out while the getting is good. Dean Garten, uh, Michael is sedated after rooting for the Bloomberg, uh, the Denver Broncos. We call them Bloomberg Broncos as well. Um, from Silk to Silicon, Jeffrey Garten, the story of globalization through 10 extraordinary lives. I want to get to the book, but first, I have to talk about this political process and the discourse. You teach with Steve Roach up at Yale. Roach gives out C's. You give out A's. We know how the dance goes. And when you talk about Wall Street in Washington, I go back to I'm sitting with the son of arguably the most decorated military officer of America in the last century, your father, right. who fought in three wars, World War II. He was at Pork, uh, Pork Chop Hill in Korea. He was in Vietnam as well. Your head must be, forget about the politics, your head must be spinning at the discourse that your father served in three wars to get us to this point. Well, you know, my father died a couple of months ago, and uh, he died in his, in his sleep, which I was grateful for, and I'm, I'm glad he died when he did. I think if he were, were watching the primaries now, yeah. um, he'd, he'd burst a, a, a coronary. Because, you know, he and, 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 and his comrades... They fought for an America that is a lot different than the one that is being discussed. They fought for a country that was a leader on the global stage. They fought for a country in which um, immigrants came in and had upward mobility. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm third generation. My father was second generation. My wife's parents were second generation. Our grandparents all came from somewhere else. And um, that's what that's what this country stood for. And those wars were fought to defend a way of life that was an open that was an open society that basically said to the rest of the world, um, we can take you and we can do some great things. But that's not the discourse mm. that that exists now. Uh, we we got to get to your book, but I got to follow up and ask: How did that cha change? How did we get to a country where people are so afraid? of the rest of the world? I think we dropped, I think we became very complacent. That is, for if you look at the end of the Second World War, I mean, when my father came back from 
the Pacific. Um, there was no country in the world that could challenge us. We basically created, and Tom alluded to this before, you know, a world, we created the rules. It was an open global economy. It was open to our companies, which were the most powerful in the world. Um, we had the best education system. We had the best technology. And so we could flourish in that global economy for a long time. But somewhere around the 90s, um, a lot of other countries began to catch up. And we were asleep at the switch. And I think now what we're realizing is that uh, we have a lot of work to do internally in order to continue to flourish, in, in order for most of our people to continue to, to flourish in this global economy. And that's what we have to do rather than close down. We were just uh, speaking with uh, Admiral James Tavridis from the uh, the Tufts School, and he said one of the most important things for a new president coming to office is to have good advice, good people around him. What advice would you give uh, the next president, whomever he or she is? What's the most important thing they need to do to change that? Well, I think if I had to put my finger on the single biggest thing, it's the workforce. If we have, if everybody is employed in decent jobs, I think many of the issues that we're concerned about will go away. Okay, we're getting to your book now in terms of the workforce. Globalization has affected the workforce in profound ways, and it's not as easy as saying we just want to, you know, get everybody into good jobs. That just doesn't happen. No, that's right. And they, but the thing is, the jobs of the future are not the jobs of the 1970s or the 1980s. And we need an internal system that is going to be able to prepare more and more people for these new jobs, whatever they are. I don't think we can know exactly what they'll be, but we need an education system that is far more effective. We need the most modern kind of infrastructure so the economy is, is more um, um, competitive, and that itself will also generate lots of jobs. Um, and I think we need a, a kind of social safety net that allows people to be unemployed for a while while they're training for something else and not fall all the way down the rabbit hole. If you're just joining us, Jeffrey Garten, serving with Nixon, Ford, Carter, Clinton, and also serving in New Haven, Connecticut for decades. The book is From Silk to Silicon, A Story of Globalization Through Ten Extraordinary Lives. Everyone yearns for technological progress that will provide investment, that will put American jobs for work. We did that with the underwater cable. My most enjoyable chapter of your book is linking the old world to the new world. Cyrus Field did that a zillion years ago, and we know it created a lot of jobs. You got Andy Grove of Intel later on. I believe he created a lot of jobs. Why can't we redux that in your 11th, 12th, or 13th person you would write about in five years? Well, I think we can. But let me just drop back and say what I tried to do in the book was to talk about globalization in a way that people could better understand and relate to. So rather than talk about big trends, I talked about people who did something really Thank you. they did something yeah. really spectacular. And they changed their world and they not, they not only changed the world they lived in, but the impact was so great they continue to change ours. So let me let me comment on the two people you Please. mentioned. And I think you're absolutely right that uh, major breakthroughs can create all kinds of jobs 
that are future-oriented. So one of these chapters is about Cyrus Field, who um, lived in the mid-1800s. And he's the guy who built the transatlantic cable. Um, to tell you how monumental that was, um, on the day before that cable was, abs- was, was um, constructed and was concluded, when, when it, it linked Europe and the U.S., on the day before, news traveled across the Atlantic no faster than it had for 4,000 years. That it, it, is, it was a question of the wind. On one minute, when that cable was actually uh, joined, we had real-time communication between the U.S. and Europe. And within two or three years after that, the entire world was wired. Think of, think of the discontinuity. Mm. In fact, the transatlantic cable was a far bigger advance in civilization than the Internet. Because when the Internet came along, we already could look at our TVs and see, uh, you know, we could see Vietnam real time. So um, the incremental advance of the Internet was far less than going from zero to real time. Well, that's Robert Gordon's point in his in his book that uh, the big advances have been done, and now it's incremental change. Well, let's 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 come back to that. But I just um, t- I want to I want to reinforce Tom's point, which is that transatlantic cable was the forerunner of the radio, of the telephone, of the uh, and, and of the uh, internet, and so it was a huge job changer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it basically put the United States into a totally different era of global communications. Well, and you think about the jobs that were created with all the new cables that were, you know, being laid right. and all the equipment that went with it. But not only that, all the business that took place that couldn't right. take place before. Well, we're gonna, I, we're, I, well we have to come back. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Garten with us of Yale University, his wonderful new book, From Silk to Silicon. Mike wants to follow up, I know, with an important uh, thought is, well, we will do that. From Silk to Silicon, the story of globalization through 10 extraordinary lives. Futures negative 7, Dow futures negative 38. A churn to the market. You see that the Monday. After Jobs Day, coming up, Jeffrey Garten, we'll talk to him about Andrew Grove. We'll talk to him about some of the other names. Michael McKee, I know, has some thoughts as well. Also, Jeffrey Garten on the potato basil frittata. We'll talk about that as well. First, let's check in with Michael Barr. We want to get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Vice President Joe Biden told American troops in the United Arab Emirates the U.S. will wipe out Islamic State militants in Iraq and Syria. Biden is on a Middle East trip. Biden also told the troops the U.S. has carried out 1,800 airstrikes against ISIS since October. The verbal battle between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders took a more pointed turn at last night's Democratic presidential debate in Flint, Michigan. Clinton accused Sanders of turning his back on the auto industry. Sanders said Clinton's friends on Wall Street destroyed this economy. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump says Nancy Reagan, the wife of a truly great president, was an amazing woman. She will be missed. Nancy Reagan died yesterday in Los Angeles at age 94. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists. In more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? And Michael, thanks so much. Yields elevated off the jobs report on Friday, uh, the tenure yield 1.90%. With Jeffrey Garten from Silk to Silicon, Bloomberg Surveillance.
The news update brought to you by Flushing Bank. Open a complete business checking account with $15,000 or more and get a free 16-gig Wi-Fi tablet. Visit FlushingBank.com for details. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. U.S. stock index futures are lower. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Karen. That's right. U.S. futures remain under pressure today. Dow futures lower by 42 points. SP futures drop 7 and NASDAQ futures decline by 17. The U.S. 10 yield at 1.9%. Main European markets are also trading lower. Energy names, telecom, and financials lead to drop. In deal news, BASF said to be evaluating rival takeover bid for DuPont. In other news, vowing to hold call on March 15th on preliminary Q4 in 2016 guidance, and Seldex plunges 50% pre-market after study missed endpoint. Finally, some of your key Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. Archer Daniels cut to neutral over at Bank of America. Stratus has cut to underweight at J.P. Morgan. Michaels cut to equal weight at Morgan Stanley. At Nomura, Micron cut to reduce, and Ingersoll Rand raised to buy. Finally, Wynn Resorts raised to buy versus neutral over at UBS. Live from the first of breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? Thanks, Bill. To hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K, Go. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Bloomberg Surveillance brought you by Invesco. Have you considered all of your investment alternatives, non-traditional Asset classes and strategies may help you achieve your goals. Find out more at Invesco.com slash alternatives. Michael McKee and I with an esteemed guest. Michael, did you notice that Yale Hockey once again does it? They host Dartmouth in the ECACs. Wow. Seven all-Ivy picks. They're just a powerhouse. Well, uh, we our congratulations to them. And, uh, no doubt all reading Jeff Garton's new book. Yeah, they're, well, you know, it's funny. It's going to be 71 degrees or so in the middle of this week. So Tom is already in beach mode and he's declared from silk to silicon his beach reading book of the year, the story of globalization, uh, through 10 extraordinary lives written by, uh, Jeffrey Garton. He is the Dean Emeritus of the Yale School of Management. Uh, we're, we were talking about how, uh, one person through their efforts, can make a major impact on uh, history. Uh, you've got ten extraordinary lives in there, but these are lives that have been lived. Uh, whom do you see out there as uh, someone who who could be the next the next chapter? Is, is there is, is there a person or a subject matter that uh, you would tout as perhaps the next big thing? Well, um, you know, before I answer that, I just want to I just want to reemphasize the criteria I used, because by any account, there are lots of really extraordinary people who are doing extraordinary things. The ten that I picked had a big idea, but they also were the ones who executed the idea. So that really limits the mm-hmm. that limits the pool. I mean, there've been many big thinkers, but to be a thinker and a doer. On an extraordinary scale, that that puts you in a much more rarefied uh, environment. And the second kind of criteria I had is that what these guys did kicked off an entirely new age. So, for example, I write about my first character, Genghis Khan. He really kicked off an age of global empire. 
or I write about um, uh, Cyrus Field, and he kicked off an age of global communication. You know, and I, I write about John Rockefeller, who kicked yeah. off an age of industrialization. Um, if I use those categories, it's very, very hard for me to, I think for anyone, to identify someone now. Um, you know, the, the, the usual suspects, let's say uh, a Jeff Bezos, you know, or, or maybe, um, you know, uh, Steve Jobs, or maybe um, uh, Elon Musk. I don't know that they're kicking off new ages now. The person who kicked off the new age in my book, the one I picked, that relates to all of them was Andrew Grove. Yep. Because Andrew Grove, as the head of Intel, um, cr- didn't create the microprocessor, but he figured out how to make it to commercial, to global commercial scale. And it's the microprocessor that's at the center of every internet digitalization gadget that we talk about. It could be phones, it could be 3D printers, it could be all kinds of sensors, but without the microprocessor, none of it would be possible. So, you, you know, that's, that was my thinking. So who, who, I can't identify a person, but I could identify maybe a, uh, a, an arena that I think someone is going to come along, let's say, and um, be the person who may eradicate certain diseases. That would have an enormous global impact in terms of you know, populations. Uh, I think someone might come along and have a technological breakthrough yeah. when it comes to climate change. You know, someone, anyone who can figure out how to capture the, the, the coal emissions right. forever, that would be. But I don't know who those people are. Um, I've got to rip up the script here. I put out a Slate article, a fabulous article by Dana Goldstein this um, uh, weekend on Andrew Hacker in his hugely controversial book, basically saying the liberal arts curricula doesn't need math. I went suitably ballistic, as I believe you would as well. Would you explain to our audience why people that aren't going to be engineers, like the people in your book, like Grove or or, um, the others, why we need math at every level of our education. Well, I just think we, first of all, I agree with you, and I I think we have entered an era where the kind of reasoning that math induces is absolutely critical to understanding various relationships. Let me put it another way. We're living in an era where you need deep knowledge, but you also need to be able to relate it to other things. And math is the ultimate sort of relational kind of discipline. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need math. I thought what you were going to say is, do we need poetry? And I think we need that too. We need that as well. We need that That's as well. That's the house I grew up right. in. But I way. think we need people who, because, because we can't anticipate mm-hmm. what the world is going to be, and I really believe that because I think that change is moving so fast, we need people who have technical capabilities but also the ability to reason critically, to ask the right questions. We could go for hours. Jeffrey Garten with us, Emeritus Yale University, their School of Management. The book is From Silk to Silicon, and it is the early advance as we hit 70 degrees temperature uh, this week in New York. It is the beach read of the year. It is a fabulous 10 chapters. I didn't even have time to mention Sean Monet, which is a, a, a wonderful chapter. Jeff Garten with us from Silk to Silicon. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. 
Coming up, the with all due respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event, Land Rover, above and beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It is 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene, and our economic indicators are brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. A slow week ahead, uh, jobs week, the first week of the month, always very big for indicators. Uh, this week, not so much. Today, the only thing we really have are the Fed's labor market conditions index. A lot of uh, labor market numbers, especially out of the jobs report, mushed together. It's supposed to come in at 1 from uh, 0.4. Uh, be surprised mushed. if it didn't rise. And then consumer credit later this afternoon. We'll see if uh, we mm-hmm. get any kind of indication of whether Americans still feel you know, happy mm. enough to borrow. Mushed came out of econometrics after World War II? Yeah. Mushed. Yeah, yeah. I, I took a mushed class. The uh, jolts, you make a big deal about the jolts survey. Yes. Uh, it's delayed data, but it does uh, tell us a lot about um, the state of the labor market, mm. how many jobs available, etc. The uh, Of course, everybody's still reacting to Friday's jobs report better than forecast in terms of headline numbers, but the big question was, why did we see hours worked and uh, particularly uh, compensation go down? Wages fell uh, after a big jump the month before. Uh, Ian Shepherdson from Pantheon uh, Macroeconomics had a unique explanation. We wanted to get that from him. He joins us now. Ian, uh, you were the first out of the gate to, to note the, that even before the report, you were expecting a disappointing wage number. Uh, what, what have you found? Well, this is a technicality, Mike. It's a calendar quirk. Um, so the payroll survey is the week of the 12th. Um, and when the, uh, the 15th falls on the following Monday or Tuesday, people who are paid semi-monthly, some of them get missed out of the wage numbers. And this isn't supposed to happen. Um, employers are supposed to recognize when those people are being paid outside the survey period and count them anyway when they report their wage data into the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But some of them clearly don't. And so there's a very, very consistent pattern going back over the past decade when, when we, the data first started to appear yeah. in their current form, showing that nine times out of ten, when the 15th is a Monday or Tuesday, the wage numbers come in way below their previous trend. And then they tend to rebound a month or two later. So we don't lose anything permanently but we do suffer what appears to be these sort of substantially volatile uh, monthly swings in numbers which really ought to be quite smooth, uh, but they're not. And it turns out that a huge amount of that variation is because of this calendar quirk. December was one of those months, and we came in with a zero unexpectedly, big rebound in January. Then February is another one of these crazy months, and we get a minus 0.1. So it's pretty consistent and uh, you know absent uh, any other substantive explanation for the the february weakness that's what i'm going for well you'd be looking for then uh, a big rebound what is the underlying state of wage growth once you smooth all this stuff out 
Well, it's accelerating. It's certainly accelerating. The trend, stripping out the calendar quirks, is probably now at about 2.5, 2.6 year over year. This time last year it was 2.0. The year before it was 2.0. The year before it was 2.0. So this has been quite a marked acceleration after a, a long time of very little action going on. Because the funny thing is, if you look at the wage numbers in real terms rather than in, in nominal terms, you'll find that they've been accelerating for quite a while, and they've been picking up in line with the tightening of the labor market that you can see in a whole yeah. bunch of surveys, NFIB and, and others. Um, and that tightening uh, is continuing, it has continued for some time, and is signaling that real wage growth has to pick up further. Now, what makes this difficult or interesting is that given that inflation has now bottomed out, and I think everybody agrees with that now, that we've, we've, we've had the downward pressure on inflation starting to move a little bit to the upside, um, the only way you can get real wage growth accelerating is for nominal wages uh, to pick up faster. Uh, and this is where things get interesting because I think this is the year when we hit the sort of rates of wage growth that the Fed perhaps begins to dislike. Uh, we don't know what that is, but Stan Fisher said about a month ago that he'd be comfortable right. to see wage growth at about three. Well, we're not there yet, but I think by the end of the summer yeah. we will be, and by the end of the year we'll be at more like three and a half, and that's when things yeah. get very tricky well, for the Fed. I, I agree with that. Nicely explained on these dynamics and whether you're an optimist or a pessimist in the economy, the backdrop to wages – animal spirit and nominal is sustained real GDP growth. Are you suggesting, Ian, that real GDP could be 2.8 or, dare I say, 3% is a run rate? Uh, three is going to be difficult for the full year because we got a horrible base effect at the end of, of last year because the Q4 was so weak. But, the, but in terms of the quarterly run rate, I think three is, is plausible, probably not for the first quarter, but for the second, third, fourth, three is, is kind of my base case. And if we get that, then, of course, that means that a further decline in the unemployment rate is more or less inevitable. You know, we've seen a big pickup in the labor force in the last few months, but it's not sustainable at this rate. So I think unemployment drops further, puts greater pressure on, on real wage growth. And, and again, yeah. because inflation isn't going down anymore, that means that uh, to get that real wage growth, you've got to get the nominal. And the Fed, you know, looking back over the last 30 years, there's a pretty consistent pattern of behavior on their part, that when wage growth accelerates substantially, they tend to panic. Um, and this happens quite quickly, you know, in the very last cycle. Yeah, yeah. you know, they, we went from 2% wage growth, 25 where we are now, to 4% in just over a year. Uh, and during that year, the Fed, the Fed went from being quite relaxed about everything to being in, you know, oh, we've really got to slow this down mode, Mike, and, and rates rose very substantially. We've got to continue this discussion, because the heart of the matter is if you assume a Fed do nothing in March, where are they the next Fed meeting after that in terms of getting back to the framework that Ian Shepardson structures? Well, They're way behind. It, it, it's even worse than that because they got to wait till June, really, if, they, if nobody thinks they would move in the April 27th right. meeting because there's no press conference. Yeah. So, that, you know, they got to wait uh, several well, more months. I, I don't know. I find it fascinating. What you just heard there, folks, was very important. Again, Ian Shepardson, look for that across the Bloomberg terminal. We'll continue with uh, Dr. Shepardson here, but I also want to point out all of our interviews, Jeff Garten, Ian Shepardson, and the rest, uh, out on iTunes and podcasts here uh, in uh, a bit. Now, negative eight on the S&P. The Dow futures negative 42. Let's check in with Michael Barr now. Get the latest world and national headlines, Mike. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. The two Democratic candidates squared off in the debate in Flint, Michigan last night. The state has 147 delegates up for grabs for tomorrow's presidential primary. 
Senator Bernie Sanders continuing his argument to invest in municipal projects. In the wealthiest country in the history of the world, we have got to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, our water systems. I've got a bill for a trillion dollars, creates 13 million jobs, rebuilding Flint, Michigan. Clinton, during the presidential debate on CNN, agreed with Sanders that Michigan's governor should resign after lead-contaminated water in Flint's drinking water. People should be held accountable wherever that leads. If it leads to resignation or recall, if you're in political office, if it leads to civil uh, penalties, if it leads to criminal responsibility. Nancy Reagan will be buried next to her husband at the Reagan Presidential Library. The former first lady died yesterday at age 94. A spokeswoman for Jimmy Carter says the former president does not need further treatment for cancer. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with John Stashower. John? Thanks, Mike. Rangers and Islanders, longtime rivals, but now when they play, it is truly a battle of New York City teams, and this year it's been all Islanders. They've won all three meetings at the Garden. They led 3 nothing five minutes in. They led 4-3 to three third period when the Rangers tied it, but with a minute and a half to go, Cal Clutterbuck scored off a faceoff. Isles won 6-4, to four, two goals for Johnny Boychuk. Islanders go 6-1 and one on their road trip. In Newark, all Penguins, they beat the Slumping Devils 6-1. to one. Golden State Warriors, an amazing 55-6, and six, but when they have lost, it's always been on the road, mostly by wide margins and mostly to bad teams, routed by the lowly Lakers, 112-95, to as Steph Curry and Klay Thompson together shot 1-for-18 on three-pointers. There could be several local teams in the upcoming NCAA tournament, assured of one coming out of the Metro Atlantic, as Monmouth will play Iona in tonight's final in Albany. And at the Colonial in Baltimore, Hofstra will play North Carolina Wilmington for the right to go to the NCAAs. Encouraging news for the Yankees. Masahiro Tanaka, two scoreless innings in his first outing since elbow surgery last year. Not many of the all-time greats end their careers with a championship victory. Peyton Manning did. He had already hinted this could be his last rodeo, as he says, and it was. He retires with five MVPs. Two Super Bowl wins, almost all the career passing records. He'll meet the media in Denver today. With Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stash Allen. John, thanks so much. Appreciate that. On a Monday, as we move forward uh, through the week, <laughs> we always do it looking at equities, bonds, currencies, commodities. Quiet on a Monday, always, it seems. After a jobs report, we did see adjustment yields higher off the jobs report. But the curve really didn't steepen all that much. It did a little. 101 basis points right now, 1.01 percentage points between the 10-year and the 2-year. That's a little bit steeper over the last number of days. The 10-year, 1.90%. The 2-year, 0.89%. Even three-month T-bill lofty at a 0.27%. S&P futures at negative 8, Dow futures negative 48. And the yen is that global barometer churning, 113.54. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Earnings for U.S. corporations up 1.5% if you leave out energy. Is that enough to keep wages growing? We'll continue our conversation with Pantheon Macroeconomics' Ian Shepardson here on Surveillance. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. 
And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. European shares are falling with copper and zinc while the dollar and German bonds climb as investors assess the impact of China's growth plans and the potential for European Central Bank stimulus measures this week. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. U.S. stock index futures are lower. S&P E-mini futures down 9 points. Dow E-mini futures down 56. And NASDAQ E-mini futures down 22. Tax in Germany is down 1.1%. CAC in Paris and FT100 both down more than 1% as well. Ten-year Treasury down 8.30 seconds. The yield 1.90%. Yield on the two-year 0.88%. NYMEX crude oil up 6 tenths percent or 21 cents to 36.13 a barrel. COMEX gold is down 3 tenths percent or $3.40 to 12.67.40 an ounce. The euro $1.0961. The yen 113.50. And Celdex Therapeutics of Needham, Massachusetts is now down 51% in early trading after saying it'll stop a final stage study of an experimental brain cancer vaccine. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Again, futures negative nine, a bit of a deterioration in the tape. On this Monday, it is 848 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Paula Dwyer, a columnist with Bloomberg View. The Republican establishment, with Mitt Romney in the lead, is hitting back against Donald Trump. Yet no matter how many party elders pile on, Trump keeps winning. And polls show 49% of Republican voters support him. Let's face it, the Republican elite has lost control of the agenda. To win it back, author and social scientist Charles Murray says the GOP should rethink bedrock policies, including a relentless focus on tax cuts, endless attempts to repeal Obamacare, and opposition to improvements in the social safety net. Such ideas are heresy among the Republican elite, yet they'd be good for Trump supporters, mostly white, non-college-educated, and lower-income voters. They haven't seen wages go up since the 1970s. The factories that once employed them have shipped out. Seen through his base, Trump's anti-immigrant and anti-free trade views make some sense. Yet the GOP has done little to help them. Trump exposes the ineffectiveness of Republican policy, but he does so by manipulating and encouraging racial and ethnic animosities. To the condemnation of Mitt Romney and many other party elders, let's hope they're not too late. I'm Paula DeWire, a columnist with Bloomberg View. For more commentary and opinion, please go to BloombergView.com. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Michael, always good to talk to Ian Shepardson. Yes, terrific uh, to have him on with us. And uh, you were talking, Ian, as, of course, the chief economist at Pantheon, uh, you were talking before the break about the outlook for the economy picking up uh, as the year goes on and for earnings rebounding. But we're not seeing the same thing in corporate earnings. And I'm wondering how whether the, the growth pickup actually translates to earnings and whether companies can continue to give raises if we don't see uh, earnings rise. Yeah, it kind of depends where you are, really. I mean, if you're a manufacturing exporter and you're selling things to Asia and you're competing with exporters from other countries, it's going to be very difficult for you because the dollar's a problem. It's very strong. Um, you're suffering weak demand in some of your key markets. Obviously, China's one of them, but others as well. Uh, and for you, things are going to be a real struggle. So 
unfortunately for those sort of businesses, the pickup and wage growth, which they can't really avoid because they're all competing for the same pool of labor, that's just a margin hit. But if you are a domestic-facing business, a service sector business in particular, with mostly domestic customers not worried about the strength of the dollar, then for you it's much more manageable because the pickup and wage growth, of course, just means your customers have got more money to spend. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to recoup, recoup every dollar of extra wage growth because you may lose a bit of market share. Somebody else might come into your space. But in aggregate, it should be okay. And so for those businesses, which, remember, are the overwhelming bulk of, of U.S. corporations, in that domestic consumer-facing space, the wage pressure is not the end of the world. But certainly there's a minority of, of companies uh, externally focused, uh, dollar-sensitive, and for those, it's going to be extremely difficult. It already is extremely difficult. This is not a new story. It's just likely to intensify over the course of the year. But I've got to say, it doesn't mean that the, the whole manufacturing sector, which, of course, has most of the exporters in it, uh, is going to perform as badly as it did last year because one of the big drags last year was the massive collapse in capital spending in the oil business. And that's pretty much over now. It, you know, it's fallen so far that it cannot fall again as far as it did last year. We, we, we've probably taken CapEx in oil from a peak of about $200 billion annualized down to about 50. So it cannot fall as far again. Yeah. And that was a really big hit on manufacturers. So less pain uh, from that source, but they're going to have to deal with that wage problem. Yeah, I don't want to catch you uh, by surprise here, Ian, but you're so good at this. When I look at full and part-time employment, Joe Malinsky uh, writes it up at Advisor Perspectives. And the, the bottom line is part-time employment is better. There's less of it and more full-time. But part-time employment is is 35% higher than it was at the bottom. We were at 13.5% a million years ago. We got up into the 20s, and we've come back to 18.2%. So we've moved from 13.5% to 18.2% of America. Which way is it? Is it part-time America, or are we actually moving in the right direction? Well, we are moving in the right direction, but there's still an enormous legacy from from the crash period, which distorted so many of these labor market numbers, and, and, and not all of them, many of them, haven't yet reverted to where they were before uh, the great crash. Um, this is a, you know, there's still an awful lot of people in these part-time jobs who want full-time jobs, but at the very same time, surveys of businesses are telling us that they're saying they can't find the people they want to hire. And this is one of these apparent contradictions that we can't really resolve with the data that we've got. I mean, why would it be if you've got millions of people who want to work full-time? They're currently employed. It's not like they, you know, deadbeat who aren't going to get a job. They've got a job. They want to work full-time. And at the same time, employers are saying we can't find the people we want to hire. So I don't know whether nobody knows whether this is a geographic problem, that the people are in the wrong place, or whether it's a skills problem. I think that's more likely. Or maybe it's a sector problem that, you know, we've got a lot of people maybe working part time in sectors where the growth isn't very strong and where growth is stronger, they don't have the right skills. We don't know. But certainly there's, there's several million people who would love to have a full-time job and, and several hundred thousand companies who want more full-time employees. You would think it would work out, but it isn't. So some, there's a mismatch somewhere. Well, the, the one thing that is clear is that even with all that, the Fed is pretty much there with the employment part of their mandate. What do you see happening with inflation going forward? Well, here's the thing. Janet Yellen said back in December that temporary factors, the strong dollar and the drop in oil prices, are holding down the core PCE deflator, which is the Fed's target measure of inflation, holding it down between a quarter and half a percent. The target's two, and the current rate, the latest data that we have, is 1.7. So you add back in those temporary factors, and core inflation on the Fed's own target measure is already at two to two and a quarter. Uh, the Fed's forecasts 
don't show them reaching that 2% target until the fourth quarter of 2018, two and a half years from now. And yet the very same data that the Fed targets are showing already, using Yellen's own calculations, that the underlying rate is already there. This really worries me because I think a Fed that wasn't so rabbit in the headlights when confronted with slowdown in China would have been hiking rates much more quickly. Uh, and the longer that they delay it and the more they find excuses looking at international developments and worries about overseas economies, none of which have very much bearing on the U.S. domestic labor market, the more uh, the danger rises that eventually inflation bites them and they have to catch up very quickly with very disruptive and destabilizing rate hikes. The funny thing is, of course, that Yellen keeps referring to this danger, saying, well, if we leave it too long, then we'll have to go more quickly and that could be very damaging. But the action that they're taking seems to me to be raising the very risk that they're setting out in those sort of statements. And I really don't get it. I think they're hugely overplaying the danger posed by China's slowdown uh, and overplaying the danger posed by the manufacturing slowdown, which is real, no question. Manufacturing is very weak, but it's a teeny bit of the economy, and the rest of it's doing much better. And the danger is that that tightening in the rest of it is going to catch them unawares. And, you know, looking at the data by their own terms, they're already at the sort of rates where yeah. monetary policy should be much nearer neutral, and it isn't. Okay, so uh, quickly here, summarize for us. Do you agree with what I heard from Michael McKee, you know, Mike suggesting not with an opinion, but March, no decision, next meeting, no decision because there's no press conference? April 27th? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, it does look to me like if, if they don't go in March, and, and, and it seems extremely unlikely that they're going to move now, um, then June is, is the most likely, and, and the danger is that by the time we get there, things have moved on significantly. Uh, you know, they're already at their mandate uh, in terms of the employment picture, and I think they're very close on the inflation front. So I, I think that, that if they do wait till June, then they'll be going very rapidly after that, and there'll have to be a significant adjustment in the markets uh, in terms of uh, thinking about what the Fed's going to have to do. And it'll all be triggered by the wage numbers because ultimately it always is. The, the added sort of uh, frisson, if you like, is that the actual inflation numbers, mm -hmm which was supposed to be something we didn't have to think about for another two years, uh, could also be forcing them to move at the same time. And history tells you that when you've got accelerating inflation and wages at the same time, things get very yeah. messy very quickly. Ian Shepardson is always brilliant. Thank you so much with Pantheon. Uh, Mike, I'm going to put out on Twitter on the part-time, full-time question, Jill Mislinsky. It's important when economic data and reports are constructed by a physics and astronomy major from the University of Chicago. I mean, is that qualifications or what? <laughs> Jill Mislinsky, I'll, I'll, put it, I'll get it out on social. Okay. Just superb work. Rob, really, Lowe, really uh, Rob Lowe tweeting out, Peyton Manning's retirement timed perfectly. He could step in as a candidate at a brokered Republican <laughs> convention. <laughs> we want Ike, or whatever the <laughs> phrase was, from 52. We like uh, Ike. Uh, Tom Keenan, Michael McKee, and Peyton Manning. Good morning.